We're going to be in Genesis 17. So you can open up to Genesis 17. Where'd the laser pointer go? Did I take it? Oh, there it is. All right, Genesis 17. Genesis 17. Genesis 17. We will be jumping around a little bit today, so consider that your warning. You're going you're gonna to have to know your books of the Bible. We'll be flipping around a little bit because we're going to, um, the theme for the day is circumcision. Right? Um, well, one week is not enough. We need to talk about it more. You can hardly turn a page in the Bible without reading about circumcision. Um, so we're going to talk about circumcision and especially I want to do a little bit of an exploration of the flesh what the Bible means by the flesh and why God is at war against flesh. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, uh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that our Savior Jesus has appeared, that he has revealed his Word to us, and now we ask for your spirit to guide our conversation, give us good questions and answers from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, review real quick. Who remembers what a chiasm is? Who can tell the class what is a chiasm? Jacob, what's a chiasm? Going into the story and coming out. Okay, that's part of it. What else do we mean by a chiasm, Sam? It's a structure. It's a way of telling a story. Or it's a way of constructing an argument. It doesn't have to be just a story. It could be anything. Um, you, could, you could preach a sermon that was chiastic. You could tell a joke that was chiastic. You could write a poem that was chiastic. It's just a, a literary or a rhetorical structure. And why is it called a chiasm? What's that chi? It's an X, right? The chi, that's the Greek letter X. So when you see the chi and the rho, that's the symbol for Christos. It's a K-R, not a P-X. It's not the prescription store. Um, it's the sign for Jesus Christ, okay? So a chiasm is simply a structure that forms an X shape. So we looked at Genesis 17, and we saw this structure. Now, this is the, the harder question. That's what it is. What is the value of knowing about chiasms? What does it help you do? Tell a story. Helps you tell a story. When you're reading the Bible, though, what does it help you do? Somebody who hasn't answered yet. Adam? Find relationships. It, it helps you find relationships. So if you look on the board behind me, you can see there's kind of this mirroring effect in a chiasm. The first thing in the story is mirrored in the last thing in the story. The second thing corresponds with the second to last. There's this correspondence, okay? And that's very helpful uh, just to see what are the connections, all right? What, are, what is the Holy Spirit trying to kind of drive home to you? Um, one of the, the best examples of this are the seven days of creation. 
Okay? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the first thing he creates? Light. Light, right? And the light of day one, if you have it as a chiasm, what happened on day seven? Sabbath rest, okay? So the gift of light goes with the gift of rest. It's all headed for light. That's why in the book of Revelation, when we get to heaven, or when heaven comes to earth, I should say, um, there's no more sun, there's no more moon, because the lamb in their midst is their light. And it's never dark. Heaven is always light. We go through day and night, day and night, day and night, but God is taking us to a place where there will only be day, okay? What, hap what was made on the second day? Do we know? What was made on the second day? <clears throat> go to Genesis 1. You're disappointing me. We should have this down pat. Who is your pastor? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. You need to know your seven days of creation. Day one, let there be light. Day two, what does God say? Verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse. What did God make on the second day? Expanse. expanse. What's another word for the expanse? Heaven or the firmament, the sky. We don't mean heaven like the place where God dwells with his angels. We mean the sky and space, okay? Now, it, that corresponds, if the creation week is a chiasm, day two goes with day six. Day six. What was made on day six? Man. man, yes. Man, the image, okay? And somehow there's a relationship between the expanse, the sky, and man, the image of God, okay? I could do it, but it would take us 20 minutes, so I'm not going to do it here this morning. Go to day three. What's made on day three? Vegetation. vegetation. But before you can have vegetation, what do you need? Land and waters, right? The earth and the seas. So before this, it was all, think of the roiling ocean. It's like a cauldron. It's all, all that water just moving around. So now we get structure. We get solid land we get water. Go to day five. What do you see on day five? What kind of animals? Fish and birds. Fish who swim in the water and birds who nest in the trees that also came up. See how there's, there's this correspondence, okay? And right in the middle, the hinge point is day four. What's made on day four? The sun and the moon. Sun, moon, stars, and they're the rulers, Right, that rule over the day and the night. Okay? So that's just an example there of how a chiasm is helpful. It puts a structure there so that you can see um, how one thing builds on another. That's very common in the Bible. Right? It's very common. Uh, it's so common, in fact, that um, you could probably find chiasms anywhere you wanted to. Okay? But here's a clue. Here's how you know you're on the, on the trail of a chiasm. I said on Wednesday night, we, we want to be like bloodhounds, okay? You're chiastic bloodhounds. You're going through, you're sniffing these things out. Here's how you know you're, that you're in a chiasm. When something, when you have the experience of deja vu, okay? When you have deja vu all over again, like Yogi Berra said, you're probably in a chiasm. 
So in Genesis 17, the big clue that, holy smokes, this has got to be a chiasm, is right here. Abram falls on his face, and then later he falls on his face again. Abram, Abram gets a new name, and then here somebody else gets a new name. Sarai gets a new name. When you see that, you start baying like a, a bloodhound. Chiasm, right? That's the clue. This is a chiasm. You get your paper out. You list it all out. You try to make it all work. That's how you become like a king, and you dig out what God has hidden in the Bible. It's the glory of God to hide a thing, and it's the glory of man to dig it out, the glory of a king, okay? So, chiastic bloodhounds and chiastic kings. That's what we want in here. Now, we talked about this, this last week. What's right in the middle of this chiasm of Genesis 17? Circumcision. So go there, Genesis 17, look at verse 9. This is right after he gets his new name. No longer Abram, now Abraham. Exalted father becomes father of a multitude. Here's the middle of, uh, of our chiasm. Verse 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from among his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so that language is obvious. Hopefully you can see the connection between circumcision and being cut off. Okay, I don't want to elaborate on it too much. Um, so it's just there, all right? Uh, so you get this command, and any time you get a very severe judgment, a very severe warning, you know that you're dealing with something really important. So think of Jesus when he says, woe to, the, woe to you if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for what? It'd be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause a little child who believes in Jesus to fall away. That shows you how much Jesus loves the little children, right? We should, that should be, instead of singing, Jesus loves the little children, we should sing, Jesus will hang a millstone around your neck and throw you into the sea, okay? It's the same idea. He, what he loves, he protects, and the more he protects something, the more he loves it. All right? So this is very important, this circumcision business. Um, a couple of things to notice here. Uh, what day is, are, are the sons of Abraham circumcised on? The eighth day. Okay? We're going to look at that again in a minute here. We're going to look at the eighth day. 
and why, we do, why he would say, do it on the eighth day. Um, there was something else that jumped out to me here. Oh, let's just remind ourselves, what do we mean by a covenant? What's the difference between a covenant and a promise? Yeah, a covenant, I've been trying to uh, put this thought in your mind. The covenant is more binding. It's more legally binding. So think of the difference between um, your fiancé and your wife, right? You can leave your fiancé, right? You shouldn't, but you can. You can't leave your wife. If you do, she takes you to court, and you got to pay, right? Because you've entered into a covenant. It's more binding than just a promise. I love you, dear. All right, prove it. Sign your name on the line. Give me a ring, right? That's what happened, Caleb. You told Chrissy you loved her, and she said, I don't believe you. So you had to marry her to prove it, okay? God enters the Lord is a covenant maker. No one forces him to do this. He doesn't do this because, um, you know, somebody's standing over God somehow, bending his arm, saying, you got to marry her, right? <laughs> uh, it's not a shotgun wedding with God. It's his, it's his gracious covenant. He enters into this covenant, right? And think about how different that is than other conceptions of God. Think about the Greeks, if you know your Greek mythology, Okay? Um, the Greeks had this view of the gods that they kind of appeared sometimes and they did weird things, right? And then they disappeared and then they came back. And if you made them mad, they'd, do, they'd turn you into rocks and trees and stuff. And animals, if you were lucky, right? Um, if you were lucky, you could become an, an animal. Um, but those gods, they never enter into any kind of binding covenant, they, they are not covenant-making gods. The Lord is the God who makes promises and who enters into uh, this covenant, this pact. He seals the deal. And that's, that's hugely important for thinking about the difference between Christianity and every other religion, right? Every other conception of God, you know, God is out there somewhere, Maybe other religions say there's one God. That's true. Other religions will say that. But that the Lord speaks, that he makes a promise, that he enters into this relationship with his creatures, that is unique to Christianity. Okay? And it's very important. So you see why this stress here. Um, you know, when, God, when we read these Old Testament stories, it's important that we keep in mind the, the history and the progress of what God is doing. He, he, um, he does something in one generation. I think I've, we've talked about this in here before. He does something in one generation that continues to be built on in the next and in the next and in the next. So there's a progress to the story. It's not a flat story. And one of the main things we see in the life of Abraham is this business of covenant. Where else did we see God entering into the covenant with Abraham? That's right. Remember, he puts Abraham into the deep, dark sleep. You guys were all in deep, dark sleep when I taught you this, right? You've forgotten. He puts Abraham, Genesis 15, he puts Abraham to sleep, and he comes in a vision of the night, a terrible vision, an awesome vision. Abraham splits the animals apart. God passes through, okay? Never been done before. 
God never did that with Adam. He gave Adam a promise. He gave Noah the rainbow in the sky. But as he's going through history, God is building up his people. He's, there's progress here. All right. And the progress with circumcision is that now this is not just something that comes to one man in a dream. This is something that you're going to know <laughs> has happened to you if you're a boy, right? Um, you're going to know God's covenant was not just with somebody else. I'm included. I'm part of it. God gives a word and he gives a sign and it's impressed on his people very clearly. Now look at verse 11. There's something kind of odd about this particular sign. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant. Now last week somebody said, um, raised the point that this is a strange sign, isn't it? What is strange about the sign of circumcision? It's hidden. It's private. Okay, it's not made on your forehead. You don't, God doesn't say, you know, put a tattoo on your head, okay? Um, he doesn't put it on a hand, so nobody else sees this. Only God sees it and the man and his wife. Those are the only people who are supposed to see this sign. So it's a sign, but it's a kind of a hidden sign. Very interesting that it's hidden. Um, what does the, why do it this way? That's the other thing, and this is the part that I think we always sort of, um, we always kind of wonder about. Why didn't God uh, say, you know, cut off your earlobe? <laughs> that would be very visible. Why does he do this particular sign? And maybe to help you think of this, just think of the, the connection between what the visual sign is and what it's supposed to signify, right? A lot of times our signs... Um, are a little bit arbitrary. Why does red mean stop, but green means go? Why not the other way around? Why doesn't green mean stop and red mean go? Well, because we all just agreed that's how it's going to be, right? There's nothing about red that means you have to stop. In fact, when I see red, I want to go, right? I'm like a bull. When you see red, let's go. Um, when I see green, I relax. When I look at Paul's coffee cup, usually when I look at Paul, I get mad. But today, I look at Paul and I relax, right? Um, so my point there is that sign has no, it's just we've all agreed that's the way it should go. When God gives a sign, he doesn't do it haphazardly. He's not just sitting up there saying, let's do circumcision. That'll be funny. That'll give them something to talk about in Paducah. It's, it's intentional. So here's, here's what we're going to look at, um, the significance of circumcision, all right? The significance of this particular action as the, the way that God wants his covenant to be remembered. And uh, actually, I need to jump ahead here to this. It has to do with the flesh, okay? So you heard in the reading there uh, that God wants the circumcision in the flesh, in the foreskin of the flesh. Now, when you hear flesh, let's just think through all the different um, connotations of that word. What comes to mind when you hear flesh? Blood. blood. Okay, you think of blood. Actually, in the Bible, flesh and blood are oftentimes kind of separate. They're the two 
pulls of a thing, okay? But we think of bloody stuff. The flesh covers, yeah, okay, the flesh covers your, um, your bones, but um, you said that it covers your muscles. What covers your muscles? Well, your skin. Yeah, okay. Okay, I want to drive a wedge between those two. I think the Bible teaches us to think this way, that there's a difference between your skin and your flesh. Okay, here's the, here's the difference. Your skin covers your flesh and hides it, all right? When you get leprosy in the Bible, how does the priest know if you have leprosy? He sees it because he sees there's a hole in your skin, right? The covering's not working, and your flesh is breaking out, and that's nasty. Nobody wants to see your flesh. You're supposed to hide that. It's like sin. You're supposed to hide it. So your skin, tell them to be quiet, yell at them. Um, He's, he's learning all the right things, okay? Your, your skin covers your flesh. When we hear flesh, we should think of the muscle, okay? All that muscle um, that covers over your bones, but God gives the skin to cover the flesh, okay? That's part of flesh. What else does flesh uh, go with in the Bible, Zoe, or in, just in your own thinking? You think of God and Jesus when you think of flesh? Yeah. Because in the betrayal, like the, like She's think, you keep thinking about it, okay? Because I'm sure you can find a connection, but it's not what I think of immediately. I think of God as spirit. God is spirit uh, and not flesh, right? God is a spiritual being. Man is a fleshly being. Jeff, what else is flesh? So, yes, so oftentimes, especially if you read the epistles, the Pauline epistles, he's going to talk about the flesh, the flesh, the flesh, and the flesh is always bad, something wrong with the flesh. It's the sinful, um, the fallen humanity. Paul is not saying that, you know, the actual muscle in his body is bad, He's saying there's something infecting that. There's this sinful nature within him, okay? Um, On the board behind me here, we've got this. Uh, The first thing is just the actual physical stuff, okay? Uh, But then, by extension, the flesh is connected with procreation. And uh, if you want to see that, we won't study it this morning, but if you want to see a particular way God, when God speaks about discharges from the flesh in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Leviticus 15, he's especially talking about discharges from the procreative organs of the body for the male or the female. So flesh has that broader sense, the muscle, but it can also be used in this narrow way, That shouldn't be too hard for us to, words are like that. There's kind of a wide meaning, and then there's a more narrow meaning, okay? Now, if you think along the lines of procreation, flesh would also be connected with genealogies, with ancestry, with a common descent. 
So this is where we use the term. We often use this. He's my flesh and blood. I think that's what Paul was getting at earlier. Someone who is your flesh and blood is what? That's your kinfolk, right? Those are the people who Donna Morris is related to in Kentucky. Um, And if they live south of the Ohio, they're kin. If they're north of the Ohio, they're darn Yankees. And they can stay up there, okay? Um, Except for me. I get a pass. Um, But anyways, that's that's a, a next level kind of connection of flesh. It has to do with genealogy. We share a common flesh. We share a common ancestor. All right. Um, Thinking about that, then, we can also see a connection to potency and power. I think I used this word last week. Flesh has to do with virility. Isn't that a good word? Virility from the Latin word vir, which means Man. man. Vir is a man. So someone who is virtuous is manly. You, you guys, you got to be virtuous, manly, okay? Um, and if you think of the extension of potency and power, one way that men extend their power and their potency is through the generations, right? My name lives on after me. My children are an extension of myself. My grand, this is why we like having family gatherings and seeing how, you know, two people grew into 40 people. Right? That's a beautiful thing. It's an expansion of power. But that's true for an individual. You can also connect it to a whole culture. So the American way of life, American values, those are fleshly things, fleshly customs. And are they good or are they bad? It could be either. Okay? could be either. So I put up here... Um, Think of, like, great heroic achievements. Those are, uh, those are flesh accomplishments. Um, who would be some good heroes? Achilles. King David, Achilles, right? The Greeks had this, uh, a Greek, if you were a Greek, you would think the greatest thing that you could do is get glory in battle. There's nothing better for a Greek than getting glory in battle, because that's what Achilles did. Okay? The Romans, the great thing for the Romans was if you were a stoic, if, you were, if nothing ever bothered you, if you were calm and cool and collected all the time, that's the ideal Roman. Okay? And all of the things that they built, all of their great accomplishments in war or art or politics or even in their sense of piety, those are all the accomplishments of the flesh. Now, There is a problem with flesh, and uh, Jeff touched on it already, which is that for all the the wonderful things that it can do, the flesh is also sinful. And so the big story here that we should keep in our minds is Babel, is the Tower of Babel. That is a story of the flesh turned loose. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower to heaven. Let's not disperse over the earth. I know God said we should do it, but let's not. And remember what God said about Babel when he looked down at it. He said, whatever they intend to do will not be withheld from them. If I don't, if I don't interfere with the flesh, if I don't go and put an end to this, they're going to do whatever they want, and they're going to be able to accomplish amazing things. 
So the flesh is powerful. The flesh is potent. The flesh is virile. The flesh is strong. And God tells Abraham, cut it off. Cut off all that stuff. So circumcision is an act of war against the flesh. Now, it's good for us to think through this because this is what God is teaching Abraham and his descendants and his spiritual descendants. God does not want the flesh to rule. God wants the spirit to rule. God's not opposed to great actions and great things um, because the spirit is even stronger than the flesh. What God is opposed to is sinful things. God does not like the Tower of Babel. God wants Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. Okay, you with me so far? This is maybe a little bit of, this is abstractions, um, but I think you can see how we're sort of building this up. Yes, Mary. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is interesting just how that word, the, just like you said, you're fleshing something out, um, you know, you have too much flesh. I need to lose some flesh. <laughs> um, it's just interesting how language... Yeah. I think the Bible, so the covering of the flesh... The skin as that which covers the flesh. Think about that in connection here. Um, It's not just that God wants us to have skin, but he wants our sin to be covered. So the, the covering that he provides is, of course, Jesus. His righteousness covers us. So the flesh is hidden. And in the resurrection, we're still going to have bodies, right? But they're not going to be fallen fleshly bodies. They're going to be spiritual fleshly bodies, all right? So the spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other, but they're not automatically against each other. Um, That's maybe, that's something that I don't want to uh, go down that track yet. The other thing to think about is this, all right? So flesh, flesh is both powerful, but it's also limited, right? Um, When God makes Adam and Eve they are limited in a way that God is not. God can be everywhere, but Adam and Eve have to be in one particular spot, right? Adam can't say, I fill the whole earth. (laughs) He's flesh. He's in one spot. And flesh also, what does Adam need in order to keep on living? Food, sustenance, air, water. He needs all kinds of stuff. The flesh is both capable of great things, powerful, and also weak. And it's interesting just to think about why is flesh, how can flesh be both weak and powerful? How can fleshly people, why does the weakness of the flesh lead to these great heroic achievements? And I'll give you, I'll give you one illustration of this. I heard this in a sermon um, recently. Um, when a person is drowning, you're not supposed to dive in after them unless you have something that floats. Because the person who's drowning, this is your picture of flesh. 
is flailing all over the place. And that, that flight or fight instinct, if you swim down and grab hold of that person, they're going to pull you down thinking that they're going to pull themselves up. And they're going to pull with so much power that you're going to go down too. That's why oftentimes um, drownings, there's two, there's two victims, right? So the flesh is powerful precisely because it's weak. And it will do anything to defend itself. So think about how that works in a culture. Think about Achilles. Think about great acts of war. Why do, why do people go to war? Because they want more. Or they have to defend themselves. And they fight things off. And heroic accomplishments are often accomplished in order to gain something that the flesh didn't have in and of itself. Um, you can think of it also this way. Um, people who are often um, bragging about themselves are usually the most insecure people, right? Um, if you ever work with people like this, the ones who talk about themselves all day long are the ones who are really insecure about themselves. You can almo it's almost a guaranteed thing. If someone's bragging about himself, it's because he's insecure, right? The man who's, or the woman who's confident in themselves doesn't feel the need to say, Aren't I wonderful? See how great I am? Notice me. Notice me. Notice me, right? Okay? So the flesh, because it's weak, tries to overcome that weakness. Because Adam knows that he's fallen, he tries to hide. He tries to cover himself. And God has to give him a better covering. He has to give him skin instead of the, the fig leaves. All right? See how this works? Yes, Todd. Right. I, I, I was trying to figure out how to get the Christ into the scene. Um, how the last sentence you associate with saying all powerful and yet he. Yeah. Right. Yeah, go to John 1. So, this is eventually where we're going to get to. The, the war against flesh starts, well, it started in the flood. God said, I'm going to cut off flesh from the earth. But it gets continued in Babel, and then in circumcision, you get this mark of God striking against the flesh. Uh, but Jesus is really, this shouldn't surprise us, if anybody's going to win the battle against the flesh, it's going to be Jesus. So in John 1, we read, this is our Christmas story, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth so jesus comes and he takes on the weakness the vulnerability the fallen the, he takes on human nature that has the effects of sin he himself has no sin but he takes on a fallen human nature Okay, so we, I know we sing in our Christmas carols, no crying he makes. Jesus cried, right? We know he cried. How do we know he cried? Because he was a real human baby. That's how babies talk, right? Sometimes they do it because they're selfish and they're greedy. It's a mark, it can be a mark of sin, but it's also a mark of, Mommy, I'm hungry. <laughs> that's, that's how you talk, right? Um, also, we know he cried because... He wept later. So it's not, crying is not automatically sinful. All right. 
Um, it just works really well in the Christmas carol. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yes? Well, I think that's a good question to have good points. Uh, and just think about the great military leaders and so on, and even the good ones. I mean, Patton had such an ego. Would he begin to lower himself or something? Yeah. And, and that's the power of God. Yeah, the power is made perfect in weakness. So the flesh becomes the place where um, God is, Jesus is going to, um, to dwell among us in the flesh, and he's going to do something about the problem of flesh. He's going to overcome, he's going to transform the flesh into spirit without losing flesh. Right? But that's, that's what circumcision is all about. And you can, you can just think of the actual action, cutting something off, very visceral, very clear, and especially from that part of the body, from the reproductive organ, to cut that part of the skin off. Okay, that makes per- this, we can start to see why God does it this way. It's not just because, I don't know, I woke up today and I think they should cut off the foreskin of the flesh. It actually connects with creation corresponds to creation, okay? Um, now, there's, there's another great place where we see this business of um, the war against flesh. Go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2 is a little bit tricky to understand. You might be surprised to know that I think it's a chiasm. Um, but we're not going to talk about that this, here. Um, just because something is a chiasm doesn't mean that's all there is to say about it. Uh, but we're just going to read it, and I think what I'm going to try to get you to think about here is, what does he mean when he talks about the circumcision of Christ? So here's what it says. In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so look there at verse 11. In Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this is not something that you need a knife for. This is not something that's unique to boys. This is not something that has to happen on the eighth day. This is uh, everybody. It's not a guy-girl thing. It's a everybody thing. Um, That's from Moana, right? Not a guy-girl thing. It's an everybody. (laughs) Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. It's It's a Disney movie. Isn't it Disney? Is Moana Disney? Yeah, it's a new Disney movie. Um, What was I saying? Oh, everybody gets circumcised. In the New Testament, everybody gets circumcised, okay? But it's a strange kind of circumcision, or it's it's a better 
kind of circumcision. Here's what it says. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's a, there seems to be this line of thinking here. You were, you put off the body of flesh when? When you were baptized, what does baptism do to me? Drowns the old Adam. It washes away my sin. How does that happen? What does it say in Romans 6? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So that's what Paul says in Romans 6. Here he says, you were baptized into, doesn't say it exactly like this, but this is what he means. You were baptized into his circumcision. Now, when we hear that, we think of, well, Jesus was circumcised, right? On the eighth day, his parents took him and he was actually circumcised. By the way, when is the eighth day of Jesus's life? If he's born on December 25th, January 1st, New Year's Day. If you come to church, always the first Sunday uh, of the new year, it's about the circumcision of Jesus. And you wonder, why is pastor talking about circumcision? Uh, well, because that's when Jesus was circumcised, okay? But that's not what he's getting at here. He doesn't mean that your baptism connects you to the, the eighth day circumcision of Jesus. Because when he goes on to talk about it, look down at verse, oh, I don't know, Verse 14, when did this happen? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the real circumcision of Christ is not that when he was an infant, he had the flesh of his foreskin cut off. The real circumcision happens when? On the cross. When the whole flesh dies. What is pictured or signified in circumcision is fulfilled in the cross. And because you're baptized, you get the same thing happens to you, right? Your baptism is a circumcision made without hands because that's when God, you know, goes to war against your flesh. And the, uh, the significance then of baptism for you is, from now on, I'm not supposed to live according to the flesh, right? Because it's, that got chopped off. That got cut off. It's been done away with. So I can't live like a Greek. I can't be Achilles. I can't be a Roman Stoic. I have to be, the spiritual, I have to be a spiritual man or woman. I have to be like Christ. Yes, Mike. Why do they, well, uh, you know why. Why do, why do the Jews go on circumcising? Yeah, because if you don't believe that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, that in him God was... Oh, why does anybody get circumcised? Yeah, well, because um, one, not everyone has this knowledge, uh, and two, because it's a custom. It just became a custom. It's kind of a carrying on. Um, it's, a, it's not necessary. It's not required. 
Um, somebody raised this question last week, I think, right? Is it, did God give this because it was more hygienic? Um, that, that thought comes up sometimes when we read about don't eat pork. Oh, God wanted his people to be healthy. That's not why, <laughs> right? God did not say don't eat bacon because he knew it would give them high cholesterol. Um, being fat in the Bible, that's glorious. So you sh if God wanted his people to be glorious, he would have said, eat all the bacon, okay? It had to do with being separated from the nations, okay? God is not um, overly concerned with hygiene, okay? Um, what's that? Yeah, he was fat. He got, that's a different story. Um, don't distract me. But, uh, but this, that is one of the reasons why doctors will say, uh, you really need, you should circumcise your baby. It, there's no religious um, compulsion. Paul says, circumcision or uncircumcision counts for nothing. What counts is faith working in love. What counts is being a new creation. What counts is the circumcision of Christ and sharing in that. And if you circumcise your son, okay, fine, but... If you don't, that's okay and fine too, all right? It's time to sneeze. All right, uh, go back then. Let's talk a little bit more about these other things. Uh, circumcision is a sign then of death and resurrection. Go to Joshua chapter 5 real quick. Joshua 5 verses 8 and 9. This is when the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, are headed into the promised land. I think, uh, have they taken Jericho yet? I think they crossed the Jordan, but they haven't taken any of the cities yet. And before they can conquer the land, they have to do something. Verses 8 and 9, who will read that for us? Joshua 5, 8 and 9. Craig, go for it. And what does Gilgal mean? You should have a footnote. This is not, I'm not quizzing you on whether you're doing your Hebrew vocabulary cards. To roll away. So circumcision here rolls away the reproach of Egypt. Okay, this is again, think of what I was saying before. God, over time, he is progressing. The revelation is progressing. And God is kind of building one thing on top of another, you cut off the flesh, the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. Circumcision gets rid of this reproach, this reproachful stuff. And it gets you ready to conquer things. You can't conquer unless you've cut off the flesh. You're not going to take the land until you get rid of the flesh. Okay, so not only is uh, circumcision a an act of death, it's also preparation for resurrection. It's death and resurrection. Um, another one here, you can look at what else you can circumcise. <laughs> um, is that what I put on? Yeah. What else can you circumcise? Well, it turns out you can circumcise other things too. Go to Leviticus uh, chapter 19. This is the trees passage. 
Leviticus 19, verse 23. When you come into the land and plant any tree, any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. It's uncircumcised. That's what the literal, if you were just getting a literal translation, it would say the fruit is uncircumcised. Three years it shall be forbidden, uncircumcised to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Now think like an um, like orchard owner. What do you do to your trees in those three years? You plant them, you prune them. Okay? Circumcision is a cut that prunes. It is the pruning. It makes things more fruitful. You're not going to be fruitful as long as you have the flesh. You've got to get rid of the flesh. And if you cut off the flesh, then there's going to be fruit on the trees. Okay? Does Jesus ever talk this way? Or is this just an Old Testament thing? It is an Old Testament thing, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So you better believe it. Go to John 15. John 15. You know this passage. I know you know it. You just don't want to say it. Do you have it there, Phil? Will you read that nice and loud for us? Read verse 1, uh, 1 and 2. So why does God prune us? To make us more fruitful. He's, he circumcises the tree so that more fruit comes out of it. And he disciplines you so that you would grow in holiness, that you would grow in good works. Why does God make your life hard? So that you can do hard things, right? Why, does he, um, why is marriage hard? Because it's good, <laughs> Hard things are good things. Why, does, why are children so good for us? Because they make us less selfish. Okay? And it's a painful thing, just like getting pruned is painful, but I, I can't only think of myself. Now I have to think about my wife occasionally. She's supposed to think about me all the time, and I think about her occasionally. See, I'm, I'm still in the flesh. I need to be circumcised. All right. Um, Something else you can circumcise in the Bible is your ears. Go to Acts. Since we're in the New Testament, go to Acts chapter 7. We shall see. This is Stephen's sermon. Acts is right after John, so it should be a quick flip. Acts 7, verse 51. Now he's speaking to the Jews. That's part of what makes this verse uh, so interesting. He's speaking to the Jews who were very proud of being circumcised. And he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You're in the flesh. Your ears are too fleshy. You have fleshy ears. They need to be circumcised. What would it mean to have circumcised ears? We're not talking about cutting off lobes. What are we talking about? Cutting off the whole ear. 
cut, well, you could cut off the whole ear. In fact, there's a story where somebody gets his ear cut off. <laughs> it happened in the Bible before Vince, that's where, maybe where Vincent Van Gogh got the idea. Yes, and strangely enough, this, I, I didn't know this until maybe uh, a year ago or so. Do you know that's one of, the, one of those details that's in all four Gospels? Very rarely are, is, does something happen in all four Gospels. So when it does happen in all four, you know that must be really important. Well, this, it's in the middle of a chiasm. Malchus, I bet it's in a chiasm, you're right. Malchus gets his ear cut off, right? He gets a, and what does Jesus do? Puts it back on, right? So he's getting another chance. He's the servant of the high priest. And Jesus is saying, we're going to cut, that ear got cut off by my disciples. I'm going to put it back on. But now it needs to be open to me. Okay? So the, yeah, I don't know, maybe Malchus was converted. That's why we have his name. Could be. I, think, I would hope that if Jesus put my ear back on, you know, I would say, I'd like to follow you. I'd rather serve you than the high priest. Okay. Um, what's that? Yeah, probably. They said, could you cut my ear off and put it back on? So this circumcision is, it removes an obstacle. Think about the ear. The ear can be blocked up by things. You get too much wax in there, whatever. Um, but to have a circumcised ear means it's open to hearing. It's open to Jesus. Right? That's really what a circumcised ear is. Go to um, the heart. Go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30. Verse 6. You can circumcise the foreskin of the flesh. You can circumcise the ear. And Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Those of you who've recently had open heart surgery, um, you know that the real thing that makes life go is the heart. Right, Phil? And if your heart is blocked up, that's going to be a big-time problem. So you need to have a circumcised heart. And here's what Moses says, chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that it pumps blood the way it's... <laughs> so that... What's the, what happens when you circumcise someone's heart? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. All right? The real goal of circumcision is not just the mark in the, the flesh. The real goal is the transformed heart. And the heart here stands for the whole person. Until the flesh, every part of you, is cut off, you're not going to live. But once that happens, then real life starts. Then the life of love can happen. So, how does love get associated with the heart? Is this where love gets associated with the heart? Yeah, the, the heart is the, the source of... The heart is in the center of your body. He's asking, why, is love connect, why does love and the heart go together? Um, and you could say, well, because of St. Valentine, right? That's why we give hearts out on Valentine's Day. Um, I don't exactly know the answer, but it, passages like this show us that heart and love should go together. 
This is early on, yeah, Deuteronomy. This is like almost the beginning. So I'm just wondering if love is already associated. You, yeah, you need to do a, a study on that. Figure it out for us. Okay, um, let's end then with uh, just a mention here, because we're at the end of our time. The eighth day. Why did God say do it on the eighth day? So a little bit of, num- we'll end with some number symbolism. Think back to the creation week. How many days did God create the world in? Yeah, seven. Some people are saying six. Some people are saying seven. It's six plus one. He finished his work on the sixth day and he rested on the seventh day. Okay. So what did he do on the eighth day? He He finished his work. He rested from his labors. The eighth day and the number eight takes on its symbolism as the start of something new, okay? I believe that Adam fell on the seventh day. Some people might, th- might say, well, he was, we don't know how long he was in the garden for, maybe for a long time he was eating from the tree of life and not eating from the tree of good and evil. I think it happened right away on the seventh day, okay? Um, but the eighth day, then, is the day for new things, New things, new things. And if you think about the days of the week, what's the first day of the week? Sunday, right? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What's the eighth day? Sunday. When did Jesus rise from the dead? Was it the first day or the eighth day? Or was it the third day? It was on the third day from his death, but it was also the first day and the eighth day, right? All answers are acceptable. Jesus rose on the first day. He rose on the third day. He rose on the eighth day. It depends when you start counting. You're right. But on the answer key, when you take the test to get into heaven, um, St. Peter will grade you, and you can answer with any of those. But eight, the significance of eight is it connects with new creation. New creation. So, why does God tell Abraham to do this on the eighth day? Because now we've got a new start. Okay? The Ishmael saga, the Ishmael experiment, the flesh trying to figure out how are we going to bring the promised seed into the world? Oh, I know. Take Hagar. Nope. New, we need something new, something totally different, something brand new. And that's what circumcision symbolizes death, resurrection, new creation, cutting off the flesh. All right, we'll stop there. Next week, we'll go on to chapter 18, and we can talk more about laughter. Um, Abraham laughs here, but we've got to spend a little more time with Sarah. Don't you think, ladies? Enough with Abraham. Let's talk about the woman. Let's talk about Sarah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the revelation of your will, uh, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to put off the body of sin, um, to put to death our flesh, and to raise it up in glory. We pray that uh, as we are baptized into him, we may share in that victory, in that power, and fight against our own flesh until the day when we will be raised in glory like his. In his name we pray. Amen.